0: We are the church, and the church is never closed. Um, Actually, last night, when I received the call that we would have this virtual service and that uh, everybody else would be there online, I thought of a couple of things. I'll share them both with you. I thought, um, actually, this was was Debbie's idea. She said, why don't you take one of your bathrobes and get a cup of coffee and go up there in your robe and coffee and make everyone feel comfortable, since we all know that's precisely what we're doing this morning for those of you watching online we're in the hundreds. And then I said, That's a great idea, but why don't we make one little change? Why don't I not have the coffee? And why don't you have the robe? And when I ask for a cup of coffee, you bring me up the coffee with your robe on. And I think her words were uh, something to the effect of, that will never happen. <laughs> Actually, brothers and sisters in Christ, it is good to be here with you. And I thank God for this technology. In fact, whenever the made the decision that the parking lot would probably be under ice, and it may be dangerous, so let's postpone one more week, I thought, that's a good idea. And then when I drove in, and I was beginning to take my parking spot, I ended up two places over And I thought, wow, there's no cars here for me to hit. That's good. But then I also want you to know that uh, I I drove Deb's Honda, not not because of safety, but I did not want to wreck my Buick. So (laughs) I said, I'll just take the Honda, honey. Um, You know, church, when it comes to this whole pandemic, and now with the storm that we've been forced to not be together... I think, frankly, the pandemic-wise, I think for the last 12 months, the single most heinous consequence, perhaps second only to the tragic deaths that have occurred, is the isolation. The fact that we simply can't congregate in any way, that we can't walk down the streets or we can't go to the grocery stores or we can't go to the ball fields and watch others play or even play ourselves. And more, more importantly, we simply can't assemble uh, for, for worship. Um, and the reason that is so tragic is because we were created to be in community, every one of us. In fact, I think of the text in Genesis 2. A lot of this is off the cuff, but I'm sure that's okay with you. I think the text in Genesis 2 where God says to Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make for him a helpmate. And we use that text. And in context, it really is dealing with husband and wife. But in creation, it it moves. It's far broader than just husband and wife. It is not good for man, generic man and woman, to be alone. We need to be with each other. But at the same time, thank God for this kind of technology that allows us to be together at least in part um, during moments like this. Next Sunday, by the way, we're going to be reassembled right here in this this sanctuary, in this auditorium, and we encourage everyone to be here. By the way, we're also creatures of habit, and over the last 12 months, a lot of our habits have been, well, simply uh, sequestered. We'll be isolated. But when the time comes, and the time is really here in part, when the time comes that we can assemble, I trust that everybody will say, okay, let's break the habit of staying at home and under the appropriate precautions, let's assemble with the saints, you know, one to the other. We are the church, and the church is never closed. You know, when it comes to relationships and how we were created to be in community, that's really the fifth argument that the Apostle Paul makes in the book of Colossians. Now, we'll not talk about that until next week. That's Colossians chapter 4. But in fact, you'll recall, been on this journey through Colossians. Uh, two weeks ago, Chuck preached on, the, on that wonderful illustration of the Super Bowl kick, you know, 65,000 fans. That was really a good message, brother. I, I, I did appreciate that. And it also made me realize, this is an aside, um, not that I ever do that, but it, it, it also made me realize that that's probably what's wrong with my golf swing. You know, you've got to keep your eye on the ball. (laughs) Me, I close my eyes and swing as hard as I can. And when I was watching you kick, I thought maybe that's the reason. In Colossians, you'll remember that there was a heresy. There was a false teaching that Paul was confronting. And it's not just any false teaching. It's a false teaching that would uh, damn. That would uh, the congregation at, at, at Colossae. That if we followed that kind of heresy, completely diminished the redemptive nature of Jesus Christ. That we would be lost. And so Paul finds himself writing to the church at Colossae, and re- realizing that this is really important. So he addresses this false teaching. Now, the false teaching, as a reminder was a curious mixture um, of, of, of Judaism, of parts of Christianity, of the mystery religions of the Middle East. Um, it, it was a couple of philosophies thrown in there. Some say that there was a form, an early form of Gnosticism. At any rate, forgetting what, you know, it doesn't have to be labeled. The fact is that this false teaching at, at Colossae, removed Jesus from salvation. And the moment you do that, the moment you remove God from the material world, hence the incarnation and the whole gospel message is completely bogus, the moment you do that, you're your own salvation is not only in jeopardy, there is no such thing, because we only have one Savior, there's only one gospel, once and for all delivered to the saints, as Jude reminds us, and so that's the heresy that Paul's addressing. Now, the way that he addresses this, he does it really in five arguments. We've gone through three. We're going to talk about one in just a moment, and then next week we'll close with Colossians 4. And really, I've added the word remember, but that's what Paul is telling them. He said, this is his first argument, remember who you are. Anytime we are tempted to sin, or we are led astray, or we hear a teaching that isn't familiar, and we know the gospel... Paul said, remember who you are, and don't be led astray by it. And what did Paul say, who we are? He said in Colossians 1 and verse 2, I mean by the second verse, you are in Christ. And then he adds in 13 and 14, you have been delivered from darkness, and you have been redeemed and forgiven. We are in Christ. We've been delivered from the devil, from darkness, from sin, and we are redeemed, and we are in Christ. That's the first argument. The second argument is, remember who Christ is. You know, these heretics have removed Jesus from his his divinity. Remember who Jesus is. And so in verses 15 through 19, he he is the image, the manifestation of the invisible God... He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the uh, head of the body, the church. In him and through him all things were created, and in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Know who you are. Know who Christ is. And then he says later on in chapter 1, know the message. You've obeyed the message. You believe the message re just remember what the message is and then he talks about the death and the burial and the resurrection of jesus and the gospel message so that's the third argument now in the fourth argument he said remember that you are protected and he'll use the word "krupto" in greek he'll use the word you are hidden with christ colossians 3 verse 3 so that brings us to this text This is how Paul begins, Colossians 2.12, and then we're going to look at the first four verses, uh, really the first uh, 14 verses of chapter 3. So the, the title of this message is that fourth argument, we are hidden with Christ. And so what Paul does is he goes all the way back to the beginning. Remember there's heretical teaching, and this teaching will lead the church astray, just like Paul's teaching today. At Antioch, Nashville, Tennessee, this nation of ours, the entire world, anything that is contrary to the will of God is something that will lead you astray. And the only way you can get back on track is to know who you are, know who Christ is, know the real true message, and remember that you are protected. You are hidden with Christ. And so Paul goes, All the way back to the beginning and he says in verse 12 of Colossians 2 you were buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead now that's what Paul begins with with this foundational structure Um, this is not a sermon on baptism that's that would be a thematic or a topical approach to the various um, things in scripture But this is a sermon, an expository sermon from Colossians that brings up baptism. So I thought I would very quickly, just really in the next few moments, remind us that baptism, our baptism, those those who were baptized at Colossae nearly 2,000 years ago, That baptism is a reenaction of the gospel. Sometimes we either don't know that or we lose sight of it. Church, there are only two things that reenact the gospel that we do, uh, one every Sunday, and on occasion we do the second. One is the Lord's Supper. You can do your own study on it, Matthew 26 and the other gospels, Mark and Luke and in John, that when we break bread together, we reenact our salvation. We, we, we reenact the gospel. Jesus died for us, as Jose was talking about. Jesus died for us. He, he, his body was broken. He shed his blood for us. And he will not uh, partake of the, of the fruit of the vine again until he comes back. And so you've got that beautiful context. But basically, it's a reenactment of what saved us. And what saved us is the redemptive power... Of Christ, his blood, his death, and his glorious resurrection that's included when he said, um, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again until I drink it. You, you and my Father's kingdom, there's going to be a second coming, and that means he was had to be raised from the dead. The Lord's Supper is a reenactment of the gospel, the second and only other reenactment of the gospel is baptism. Now, you'll remember in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, a text that I know you're familiar with if you're a Bible student. And if you're not, it's a great text to turn to and read. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes, "Um, now "...now I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preached to you the gospel." in which you received, in which you stand, uh, by which you are saved, unless you believed it in vain. For I delivered unto you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. Now Paul lays out to the Corinthian church the gospel. Now, I know it's broader than that, but when you peel all the layers back, the good news of God is that Jesus Christ became flesh. John 1.14, dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, lived a perfect life, died because of our sin, therefore took our sins upon himself. He was crucified, buried, raised from the dead by the power and the glory of God. That's the saving message if we have faith in it and if we have a saving act of faith. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, something very similar to this. He'll say, do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. As Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too should walk in the newness of life. Baptism reenacts the good news of Jesus. It reenacts our salvation. Every time we, we welcome those who, on based on a saving faith, based on their faith in Christ, enter the waters of baptism, we are all reminded that we're saved. And it reenacts that which saves us. The same thing when we congregate and we break bread together, reenacts the gospel. Now, as uh, just before we leave here, I want to remind us all of Peter's words, and I think these are very important as we we attach them to 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 6, Peter's words in 1 Peter 3, 21, when he talks about baptism, and then he tells us what it is. If you've ever wondered, what do I say to someone if they ask me, what is baptism? This is what you say right from Scripture. The Apostle Peter writes, it is not a cleansing of the body. It's not a washing of the body. It's not about the H2O. It's not about the water. That's the imagery of the grave. And then Peter goes on, baptism is an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every time anyone is buried with Christ in baptism. They are appealing to God with a clear conscience. I believe in the resurrection. I know Jesus was raised from the grave. I beg you, Lord, I appeal to you by your mercy and grace, raise me from the death as well. Allow me to walk a new life here and then welcome me into your eternal kingdom. That's what it's all about. And that's what Paul does to remind the church at Colossae you need to combat this heresy, this false teaching. Now, he goes on to say, by the way, let me finish. notice that last phrase um, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And then he'll pick that same thought up in the very first verse of Colossians 3 if it's conditional, if then. You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, for you have died, and your life, there it is, is hidden with Christ. I sent out that little email at Andrew's request, and it was a request. Thank you, brother. He said, why don't you share a little thought of devotional thought last Sunday, since indeed we couldn't congregate. And I thought of this, and I shared that with you if you happen to look at it. It's from the Greek "krupto," and it's a very carefully selected word. The word means, in translator, in English, is the word hidden, to hide. The verb, the infinitive, to hide. And Paul writes, we, the body of Christ, we are hidden with Christ in God. And if you peel the layers back with the word itself and do a little quick study on it, you'll realize that the word meant to make something invisible with the intent to protect it. And then I used the example of, I had read where somebody had pretty much emptied their bank account and purchased 100 ounces of pure gold which in today's money would be a couple of hundred thousand dollars. But they didn't have a safe, and so they decided to spray paint it black and use it as a doorstop. And sure enough, their house was plundered, and everything was taken. They called the cops. The police come. They asked, was everything taken of value from your house? He said, everything except the doorstop. (laughs) except the doorstop and they laughed and said what do you mean then he explained well i bought the gold and i painted it black used it as a doorstop and they just plundered the house and walked away with it sort of when it comes to our spiritual walk that's what god has done with us he has you know in fact i had an email from a dear friend of mine andrew uh, jackson actually brother brother andrew who wrote me after that little devo- that little uh, devotional thought and he said, "He said we are pure gold. What a great analogy. And I thought, you're right, Andrew, we are. We are pure gold in the eyes of God. And he has hidden us with Christ in God. So we are buried with him to be raised with him. And we are hidden with Christ, verses 5 through 9. Therefore... We need to take things off. This goes back to the the death. You know, you have died to sin. You're buried with Christ, and you're getting ready to rise and walk a new life. So you take things off. And Paul alludes to this in Colossians 3. He said, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. By the way, is he addressing Christians or non-Christians? He's addressing Christians. So that tells me, hmm... I wonder what Paul would write to the Antioch congregation. He tells Colossae, put therefore what is earthly, put to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, do not lie one to the other. Now the real question, as you do any kind of expository study, the real question is not what did Paul say to the Colossians. That's the first question. But the second one, Without it, there's no application. Therefore, the text is meaningless. The second one is, if Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, were writing the Antioch Church of Christ, what would he say? Would he say, you know, I applaud you, God bless you, you are in Christ, redeemed, forgiven, um, you know, delivered from darkness. I have this about you that I think is wonderful, yada, 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 but put death... You fill in the blank. What would he say? I don't know. Judgmental spirit. I don't think we have one. But yeah, judgmental spirit. You know, maybe materialism. I, I have no idea what Paul would write. The real question is not what he would say to the congregation. The real question is what would he say to Wit if he's writing him a letter? And No Wit. Hey, brother Wit. Put to death. That's when you apply the Word. And without application, the Word is worthless. And he closed with, if we take off, as Paul would tell the Galatian church, Galatians 3.27, you know, all of those baptized into Christ have Put on, Christ. When you take off, you need to put on. So here's what Paul said, put on. Keep in mind, this is his rebuttal to false teaching. You want to find out what do you do when the world you know, is leading you astray, this is what you do. You put on compassion. You put on kindness and humility and meekness and patience. You forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive, and above all these, put on love. It's a journey of faith. We're talking about saint-making. We're talking about discipleship. The moment we are born into the body of Christ, the family, added by God himself. We're we're infants. You could be a 95-year-old baby, but the moment you know Christ, you start to crawl, and I guess turn over and crawl and walk, and you start to live. What do you live? You live this. You understand what compassion really means, and I guarantee and you know this as well, everyone in the sound of my voice, the older you are, even though gray hair doesn't necessarily connote gray matter, but the older you are in Christ, then the more you understand compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness and love. This is what we put on, and it's not an instant process. Um, very quickly, Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 have the the author of Hebrews uh, writing these Palestinian Christians and he's reminding them uh, that Jesus Christ, is far above everyone, everything. People consider those Bible students, a lot of Bible students, think of Hebrews as being a comparison of two covenants. It really compares mediators. It compares Christ with everyone else. Chapter 1, he's greater than the angels. 2, he's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron. And then the writer said he's sort of like Melchizedek, who was both a priest and a king. And then it's like this writer is seeing a deer in the headlights, you know, just like... And then he stops for this parenthetical explanation in 11 through 14 of Hebrews 5. He says, about this we have much more to explain because you've become dull of hearing. For though by now you ought to be teachers, you need someone again to teach you the first principles of God's word. You need milk, not solid food. Why? Well, because solid food is for the mature, for the complete. Now, notice how the author explains that. For those who have exercised their faculties to distinguish right from wrong. Saint-making, if you allow me the word saint, discipleship is a lifelong process. Discipling is lifelong. I was saved when I was 12, years and years ago. But I've been discipling, I've been discipled ever since then. It means one who learns. And it's, I've been trying to put on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and love. And every day, I, I, I hope and pray, you too, that it's more than we did yesterday. Sometimes we fall and we get back up and by God's grace and mercy, we, we, we press on. That's what discipline is all about, and that's what Paul says. It, it takes, I've, I've heard, I've read that it takes a thousand repetitions to, to create a, a habit, especially in the sports arena. Um, for example, if you have a bad arm, it takes, they say, sports, sports psychologists and sports trainers say that if you want to baseball or whatever the sport is, you have to have muscle memory, and muscle memory comes when you don't think about it. It's just automatic. It's like breathing. And so if you have a bad throwing arm, and the only way to correct it is to have somebody show you the right the right motion, and then you've got to do it intentionally a thousand times before in a ball game it becomes natural, right? I can recall with one of my sons, I won't, I won't mention who, but... One of my sons, when we were in Japan, we just got to the base. He wanted to play baseball. There's literally, um, I put him on the team, and his coach didn't know. He puts him out in right field. Nothing wrong with right field, but there's never a bald head up there when you're 11 years old. Right field, and, and but the third baseman couldn't catch anything. Couldn't, everything was between his legs, so I go to the coach. It's my prerogative as a dad. I go to the coach, and I say, if you'll put my son on third base and out of right field, nothing will go through him. Nothing, I promise you. He says, okay, I will. The next inning, he puts him on third base. First ball is hit, hard grounder. He scoops it up, and he throws the ball, and it lands between the pitcher's mound and first base and drops to the bag. Well, after the inning, the coach finds me in the stands and says, calls me chaplain. He says, chaplain, I thought your boy could play third base. I said, I didn't say he could play third base. I said nothing would get past him. I never said he could throw. (laughs) That's just a true story. So it required effort. You've got to work on it and work on it and work on it until finally the time comes when Right motion. It, it's habitual. It's like compassion and kindness and humility and meekness. It doesn't just happen. You have to intentionalize it. You have to realize that I have to you know, do this on purpose. One last illustration, then this message, church, will be yours. We lived in Amnes, the Netherlands, for three years, three and a half. And Amnes is a dairy village in, in Holland, About, I don't know, 20 kilometers um, north of of Amsterdam. Anyway, we were the only Americans in the village. But right across the street from the flat that we were in was a Dutchman. Older man, probably a retired dairy farmer, moved to the city. There was only one street through the village, so the village. And every morning he would go out with the rake and he would rake his pebble driveway. Just perfectly raked it. And every now and then I saw him on the roof patching his thatched roof. And it brought meaning to an illustration I had heard years before and had even used in sermons. And then it all came alive to me because he only repaired the roof in the good weather, which had to be July, August in Holland. The story goes that there was this old Dutchman on his deathbed and his daughter comes to him and I can't fake the accent so his daughter comes to him and says daddy read the Bible he says no 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 push it away you know and she does it again daddy read the Bible he's not no 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 dad read the Bible you're dying and finally the old man looks at his daughter and says daughter I've thatched the roof In fair weather, I need not work in a storm. And that is what Paul is talking about. We are hidden with Christ. We are protected. And he reminds us, when we became Christians, we were hidden at that time. And we need to continue to put to death certain things. And we need to put on certain things. And it's a lifelong journey. That's the roof in fair weather. Not in times of the storm. May God add his blessing to his word. Church, what we're going to do right now is simply close with a... Benediction, if you will. I thank you again for attending, those handful who are here who helped us this morning, but most of all the entire church family and those others who, by God's grace and God's promise, may be well listening right now. I want to hear the words of the great apostle John. Third John in verse two, and I think it's really a Today's world, to the church anyway. John said, I pray that you are all in good health. I know it is well. Amen.